I want to continue on here uh, with, the, with the book of Acts. I want to move on, though, because we're following Paul still. We're following him as he moves to the book of Acts. There's two things I want to talk about that will take some time today, and I want to make sure that we have time to get to them and not... <coughs> not make everybody wait for us outside. So we're in uh, Acts. This is right after all that happens. John leaves them, and Paul and Barnabas keep on going. And they end up at Antioch, which is actually on the border of Turkey. It's a port city. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, like I sent them a note, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So here you have an opportunity to speak. And like, wait, 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 wait. The synagogue has asked them to speak. This is like almost a miracle. This is a church in full-on persecution at this point, right? They have been beaten. uh, Stephen was stoned and killed. They tried to kill Peter. They threw him in jail. Uh, So, you know, all this is going on, and yet they go here, and the synagogue leaders are completely fine with them being there and say, in fact, if you have something to share, we'll leave you five minutes at the end uh, to, to share and, and I just think that this is probably one of those moments that, is, my wife has a Russian expression, was a balm on their hearts. You know, it's like, no one, I mean, we're all prepared to be persecuted for the Lord, but no one wants to be persecuted for the Lord. And so for once, they come in, and everybody's like, yeah, we'd like to hear what you have to say. And they must have been like, wow, this is incredible. And the danger is, I want to stop on this for a moment, because although they don't fall into the danger, the trap here is that we get lulled into this idea that, good, God has put these people here to help us, and they're going to move our ministry forward. An awful lot of times, that isn't God putting them there. In fact, I think the reason many American Christians don't see the devil is because they're braced for an attack from a pitchfork, but the devil approaches them with a kiss, which is how Judas betrayed Jesus, right? Because he doesn't know all things, but he has a bag of tricks, and persecution is not working at this point. You know, he's beat him, he's terrorized him, he's killed him, he's done all these things to persecute the church. The church has just grown. I think the devil's just shifting gears here. That didn't work. Let's lull them into a false sense of security. Sometimes the devil lets off to see if you will. You know, and, and it kind of gets easy to do that because we see these people coming along and we're like, surely God brought these people here to help us. Let's sit back and let uh, them help us. And, and so we, we kind of start handing off our mission that was given to us by God to these other people, and that's where we really fall into danger because we have a tendency to look at our life with God based on how we view the blessings or not blessings in our life. It's kind of a natural thing. If things are going well, God must love me. Things are going well. God is blessing me. Isn't that great? Things not going so well. What did I do wrong, God? Are you mad at me for some reason? Uh, Why am I under this oppression? But the reality is that we need to focus on Jesus always and only. Everyone recognizes that Stephen was spirit-filled when he was performing wonders, but he was just as spirit-filled when he was being stoned to death. So we can't always look at the things around us and how other people are reacting uh, about it in order to know what we're supposed to be doing as far as God. We need to always just kind of turn back to God, look at God, pray to God, stay focused on God. But what we must really make sure is that God didn't give us a ministry or a mission in order to hand it off to somebody else. The Holy Spirit who called you to do something is a Holy Spirit who will finish it. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. We should not expect the world to help us complete a mission that God has given us. So we have to be careful about that. We have to stay focused. Now, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas stay completely focused throughout this whole thing. And we're going to see as it moves on that the the actual uh, character of these people get revealed for what they are. So Paul stands up. 
because they've asked him to speak for five minutes, right? Never tell a preacher to speak for five minutes. He'll ignore you. He'll speak. He'll never speak for five minutes. So Paul stands up, and he starts a sermon. And I'm going to edit most of it for time today. But he says, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. And then he goes on. He starts with Exodus, and he goes all the way up to Jesus' resurrection. It's a long sermon, but it has just enthralled the people. that They're, they're hanging on every word because the Spirit is there. The Spirit is, is anointed Paul to give this message, and everybody's listening to it. And he ends up by saying this. We preach to you now the good news, the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, that he raised up Jesus. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaim to you and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets will not come upon you and he's going to quote some scripture and he's warning them because the scripture has prophesied that many Jews would not listen behold you scoffers and marvel and perish for I am accomplishing a work in your days a work which you will never believe even though someone should describe it to you so he's cautioning them, don't just cast this aside. This is a message for you from the high king of heaven. And then we all finished up, and they got up to leave. Everybody comes up to them. They can hardly get out of the synagogue. People are coming up and begging that these things will be spoken again next week. Hey, that was great. Tell us again. Now, I don't think they're saying, I forgot my notebook. Could you come back so I could write this stuff down? I believe they're really saying, boy, I know somebody who should have heard this message because that happens all the time, right? You're there and like, oh, man, so-and-so needs this message. By the way, usually, usually so-and-so doesn't need it. You do. But, um, you know, oftentimes people, I've had people give me, buy me tapes and sermons. Here, listen to this. This is a message for you from God. Really? Then why were you there and not me? I don't know. But uh, anyway, so I think they're actually saying, I want to bring someone back who needs to hear this message. And, and we need you to come back next week. And, and when the, all the people had filed off, the leaders of the synagogue come to them. And they say, look, uh, we, we think this is great. And they urge them to continue on the grace of God. We'll have you back next week. Now, listen, as somebody who's a founder of a church, I got to say, there's nothing better for a founder than to see his people excited about things. You know, when, when, when Spirit Chapel gets energized about things, it energizes me. I love it. And I think that's going on here. Wow, these people were more energized than we've seen them forever. This is great. You guys need to come back next week and preach again. So they all go out, and Paul and, and Barnabas, I believe, went into prayer. What's going on, God? We didn't expect this. What should we do? And I think God gives them the entire layout, because from now on, you'll see they're not surprised by anything, even though some rather surprising things occur. Uh, so the next Sabbath, <clears throat> the whole city is assembled to hear the word of the Lord. I cannot imagine that. I just can't even imagine the entire city. Like, we, we open up the doors of Spirit Chapel and all the EFs out there. And it's like overflowing into the parking lot. It's going way out there. I don't even know what we do. We only have two bathrooms here. How, how are we going to handle this? And as you can imagine what they're like, the entire city showed up. Now, it's not just Jews. It's Jews from mostly Gentiles. And they're all there. This is amazing. Now, the church who wanted people to be energized, you would think they're really excited at this point. Like, wow, this is, this is better than we could have dreamed everybody's here. We're like the most important place in all of Antioch right now. But Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that's not the case. And in fact, he puts his finger on exactly the cause. He wants us to know that's not the case. And here's why that was not the case. But the Jews saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy. What? They're filled with jealousy? Yeah, because no one ever showed up for them like this. And all of a sudden, they couldn't look at that as a blessing of God but as a kind of backhanded slap against their ministry, no one's ever showed up because for us, 
What's going on here? And if the people are so excited about these two people, what happens if they set up another synagogue across the way? Or what happens if they move? Are people going to go with them? Because clearly they're not here for us. They've never been here for us like this. What about those two there? And I know to some degree, and I'm going to confess this, I'm reading into this a little bit because we're going through that right now as a church. I get that. That you know, We have an opportunity as a church to move forward as a church, and there's somebody who is actually a pastor in the area who's trying to stand in our way. And so I, I get that, but I really think that's what's going on here. There's some jealousy and possibly mixed with a little fear because whenever you have anything going on, the devil always mix fear in with it. That's one of his best tools. And so what's going to happen next? And so they're, they're all of a sudden not so sure. But here's the really dangerous thing. They actually begin contradicting the things spoken by Paul. They're blaspheming. They're actually disparaging Paul. You know, hey, you really know why he left Jerusalem, don't you? He's not welcome there. You understand that, right? So they're actually starting to spread rumors. And I want you to note they're not doing it to their face. Others do. They've gone to other synagogues where they, they actually call them out right there in front of everybody. You're blaspheming, you know, and, and they take them out and stone them. But not these people. They're working around this behind the scenes. Because when you have a crowd like that, you understand they can't hear everything. They're not amplified. And so what's happening is people are, are, are spreading the message as they, as they preach it. They'll pause and people will spread it. Well, they're out there intercepting the message and perverting it and twisting it and turning it and contradicting it. And so they're actually kind of messing things up here for those who are trying to listen and try to believe the people who were brought here by those friends. And so this is really a very, very bad situation for Paul and Barnabas because now their message is getting distorted. What do we do now? Well, Paul and Barnabas simply stand up and call it like it is. You know, these people may be working behind the scenes, but they're going to call them out. They say, look, we had to speak the word of God to you first. We did. But since you reject it and don't consider any worth in eternal life, we will now turn to the Gentiles. He said, we had to start with you. We had to. We had to come here and proclaim the word of Jesus to you. And I'm thinking, really? Are we sure about that? Do we really have to do that? Because he goes on and he says that this was prophesied by the Lord. And this is, is prophesied by the Lord. It's prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. Jesus reiterates it. Uh, he says, the Lord commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. He says, I had to come here first to preach to you, even though I knew you're going to reject it. But that's okay, because God told us after you reject it, we could do what we really came to do, which is to preach to the Gentiles. But I'm wondering why. Now, the Gentiles receive it. When they hear it, they're very happy, and many of them are going to believe so that all works, but I'm thinking this is kind of a difficult situation to put Paul and Barnabas in. There's already been a prophecy given. We know the Jews are going to reject them. Why do they still go there and give this message? Because here's the thing that concerns me. There are some people who are being lied to that believe the lies. You know, some people believe the lies. That's why lies work, you know. And I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's why people lie, because sometimes it works. And so they were lying about Paul and, and Barnabas. They were lying about the gospel. They were lying about things. There's going to be somebody sitting there who's going to believe that. In fact, maybe many somebodies are sitting there who are going to believe that. Why would God do this? It seems like it'd be cleaner to simply have Paul announce to them last week uh, yeah, we're not coming back next week because you're going to reject the message anyway. We're going to go to the forum and we're going to open it up, which is a better facility, and we're going we're to preach to the Gentiles because that's why we came here. Why would God put them through that? And, you know, that's kind of, a, again, I know it's kind of our personal story right now, but it's kind of where we were when all this thing broke with the Boston Presbyterian Church. You know, they approached us initially saying, hey, we're going to close up. Um, you know, they were 
They've been, they've been there for 150 years, uh, but you know, they're down to 15 people. Median age is about 65. They just couldn't keep going. And so they reached out to us and said, we're going to close. If there's anything you can use here, take it. We went over there and met them and said, well, we could actually use everything, including the building that's in, to be honest with you, uh, but there's no way we could afford it. And they said, don't be so sure. Uh, actually, I think we could work this out. And so they put us in touch with Presbytery. We talked to Presbytery. Presbytery said, boy, you're exactly the kind of place we hoped we'd find. You're an established church. Uh, you know, money's not the main consideration here. We want to see another worship uh, center. Uh, we don't want to see this thing closed down and become derelict. Our first choice is another church. Our second choice would be a community uh, outreach of some sort. So this is great. Uh, you know, we'll have to work out some details, but we're, we're very open to this. Uh, but it's going to be a committee that decides it. And the committee is made up of three members of the church. And they all told us, you guys are our choice. Because yeah, a lot of you guys went over and met them. And we were like, just like friends instantly. It was great when we met them. Uh, so, and then there's two pastors in the area were put on that committee too, five people. So you kind of think, well, this is kind of a done deal, right? Presbytery said it's what they're looking for, and we got three votes on the committee. But we didn't get three votes on the committee because this other pastor reached out behind the scenes to keep our bid from even being heard. So he squelched it in a backroom deal. And that was hard. That was hard for us, you know, I, I, because not only do you kind of get your hopes up, but the fact that we didn't necessarily go looking for this that found us, I'm like, God, why? I'm okay, but please understand, I'm okay with wherever we end up. I believe God's moving us as a congregation, and he has something for us, and I believe that, and I'm okay wherever that is. But it's not like we went looking for it. It found us, and it just seemed like everything felt right to us, that God was in all of this. And so I'm thinking, God, why bother putting us through that? The answer is going to be no anyway. I, I don't understand that. It makes no sense. And there are many times in my life that I just have these moments where things don't make sense. And it goes against my upbringing because you have to understand that I am a, a preacher's kid, right? My father is a Presbyterian minister. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister who's also a missionary. So uh, I have three generations of John Calvin running through my blood, you know, that which is the guy that the, pr the Presbyterian church is founded on. And, and part of the whole thing it, with the Calvin Institutes is that uh, he teaches this concept of predestination. Now, there's biblical reference for that. There is. But what basically comes out of the predestination is God's in charge. God has a plan. And when things don't go your way, trust the plan. And that's what I was brought up to believe. I think this is actually a really great theology if you lived a pretty blessed life, to be honest with you. Because it's easy to trust the plan when the plan seems to be working. You know, it's, it's kind of favoring you. Kind of easy to trust the plan. A little bit harder when things go wrong to trust the plan. Because suddenly it doesn't make sense to us anymore. And for my whole life, I've been trying to comprehend what this whole plan thing is. And um, I've, been, I've been kind of putting it into my terms most of my life. As I try to take this con concept of a plan that everything's working towards, and, and the, look, there are scriptures for this. It's not like, you know, they made this up. And one of the ones that uh, Presbyterians love to trot out, uh, and I know this because I used to do it, uh, is this. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, you don't understand it, but you're not supposed to. You're not God. And you have to just understand and trust the plan. But wait a minute, what, how can I trust a plan that doesn't seem to be working for me? You know, then they bring out Jeremiah, because this is back, this is the other, the other crutch. One's on the left side, this is the crutch on the right. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. 
So these two things go together to, you know, just trust the plan. He's, he wants to prosper you. He wants to give you peace. Trust him. It may not make sense now, but eventually it all makes sense in the end. This has even made it into the American culture. You guys probably know people who aren't even Christians say, well, it all happens for a reason. Have you heard that? Says who? What reason? They don't even believe in God and they're saying it. Everything works out in the end. Have you heard this? Like I've heard this from teachers and things that weren't even necessarily believers. Everything works out in the end. There's a plan. Trust a plan. Everything will work out. But what about this idea that we make choices? Don't worry about it. God's got that cover. He's got a plan. So I want to show you, uh, and I'm going to need a little grace here, I know, for some of you, but please give me a moment. It's going to take, it's going to take some time. But I want to show you what I finally conceptualized. I didn't realize this, but this is what I finally conceptualized to understand the plan. And in order to do that, I have a demonstration that I want to do, and I've actually asked for some help, and I've, I've recruited, I, sh I drafted Julia. So if you come up. Okay, so what happens now in this service doesn't translate well to audio. So instead of just playing the audio from our video, I'm going to describe to you what happens. Basically, I do a card trick. I have someone pick a random card, and once they've done that and they're convinced that it's completely random, I have another member of the audience come forth and show a piece of paper that I gave them which predicted exactly which card they would select. That's it. If you want to see the actual trick, you can go online, www.spiritchapel.us, and click on sermons. I got, I got to say two things first. Because people will ask, that is, that is a completely fair deck of cards. We bought it at Rite Aid two days ago. That's why I made poor Julia um, open it all up uh, to show you that. You can feel free to examine it later. I don't care. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is much more important, in order for that to work, I cheat. I cheat and I lie. That's why we call it a card trick, right, because I cheated. Uh, I said we have a choice between 52 cards, and you would think we did, but we didn't because I cheated, and that's why. But this is kind of how I thought God worked because, uh, you know, he gives us choices, but no matter which one we choose, it's still according to his plan. So I always thought, well, there's some, you know, there's some force that's going on here. You know, there's some way that he's kind of making us choose because he has to make us choose according to his plan. And actually, if you think about this conceptually, that makes sense. Let me ask you a question. Could Pontius Pilate have chosen to not crucify Jesus Christ? It certainly looks like he could. Everybody in Rome thought he could. You know, he had the choice. He could have released Jesus instead of Barabbas, right? Could have. But let's walk through that for a moment. Suppose he doesn't. Then Jesus doesn't get crucified. He isn't dead. He isn't risen from the dead. And our sins aren't forgiven. And, by the way, it was prophesied that Jesus be crucified. So did Pontius Pilate have a choice? See, this is the problem we run into when we start really thinking deeply about some of the things and we're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible God. But this is kind of how I always worked with my theology, where I thought, well, you know, it kind of seems like we have a choice. And there's something else that came along later that I thought was interesting, and I kind of grabbed onto this. There was this idea that there's God's permissible will and then there's God's perfect will, right, in the middle of it, right? So we had some choices from, you know, boundary to boundary of permissible will, but you couldn't get outside that boundary. He's going to make sure that didn't happen. But as Christians, we're supposed to choose to be right in the middle of his exact will, and that was kind of how I lived, again, most of my life uh, until we opened a church. Then things were about to change because <laughs> I thought my church was, I thought my life was fairly easy before, but when I, we opened a church, suddenly it became very hard because we, became, we began to interact with people 
and a lot, we saw a lot of things that just simply didn't fit into my simple theology. And uh, I think I've told everybody this story before, but before we opened the church, I met with a lot of pastors. In fact, before we opened the church, we went to a lot of churches. We were trying to find a church to plug into. That was our first desire. And when we decided finally we would open a church, I wrote, I wrote to or emailed almost every pastor of every church that we had been to, especially the startups, uh, the ones who you know, started a new church, because I didn't know what I was doing. I was scared to death. And one of the people we reached out to was Grace Cranberry Church. Uh, they, were, they were at the time one of the 100 fastest growing churches in America. And we'd actually been up there several times. And, and you've heard me say I was going to take off and go to Cranberry. That's why. Uh, we were going to move when Stas got back from Af- Afghanistan. We, we were renting. We were just going to move to Cranberry and throw in with Grace Cranberry Church. We really love those guys. And we got to be pretty good friends with the associate pastor and his wife, uh, Bob and Cindy Zontz. And so when we started the church, I wrote to them and said, hey, we're going to start a church, believe it or not. And um, we'd kind of like to talk to you about you know, what happened when you guys all started Grace. And they wrote back and said, well, unfortunately, we weren't here then. We didn't come by for many years after that. The person you need to talk to is Matt Kaltenberger and his wife, Dana. Uh, because they were really the founders. Well, Matt Kahlenberger was the founder and lead pastor of one of the hundred fastest growing churches in America, and we never met. Uh, I mean, if they have a couple thousand people going, we didn't even shake hands. I thought, well, that's senseless. I'm not going to bother even writing him. But Bob and Cindy forwarded the email, and two days later, Dana contacts me and said, hey, we'd love to meet with you guys. When can you make it? And so we went up there. They cleared their schedule uh, in order to sit down and talk with us, which is really humbling. And we had just, I don't even want to call it a meeting, it was just this great conversation, you know, where they were honest about things, they told us stories. And um, he said a lot of things that I wrote down that day. And one of them, or a couple of them, actually have proved to be almost prophetic. And this is one of them. Um, he said this to me. He said, I don't know whatev- whatever your systematic theology is, but whatever it is, it will not survive your first year of ministry. And he was pretty right. It, it survived a year and a half. Uh, and then it blew up, and blew up uh, when we lost Roberta Donnelly to stage four cancer. Because we were praying f- for a miracle, and I could go through all that. You know, we were there every day for several months or two, three months, something like that. And we were watching bad things happen to a very good person, and we were praying for a miracle. And I could be okay with that because I thought, well, this is going to make the testimony greater when she's healed. And then she wasn't. And I suddenly didn't have a lot of answers, and this whole plan thing didn't seem to fit very well anymore because I walked out of there thinking that couldn't have gone according to plan. I I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. And I did not lose my faith in God. I still believed in God, but it was like he was a stranger to me. It's like, I don't think I know who he is. I still believe he's there. I still believe he loves me, but I don't know what that means anymore. I'm, I'm just really confused by this. And it kind of sent me into, and those of you who were here through all that, if you follow my sermons, uh, you can probably tell a little bit of a search. Because I'm trying to think, what is going on here? How can this be? This doesn't fit any kind of a plan that I could possibly understand. And so I kind of started stripping back because I realized what's happened is somehow I've got men's teaching mixed with God's teaching. And I need to somehow figure out how to separate that. And so finally I decided, well, the only thing that's predictable about God really is his nature because he cannot change. He tells us that. And so if God can't change and his nature is right, then I need to really kind of tuck in and get deep and try to figure out what is the nature of God, because that'll probably show me a lot of these things that I've missed and where I'm wrong about everything. And so I started kind of trying to understand who God was, and I was comforted to know that I'm not alone. You know, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see it only as a reflection in a mirror. 
But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but I should know then fully. I will know God fully the way he fully knows me. So even Paul is saying, I don't really have a full picture either. It's a dim picture. I'm thinking, man, if he's saying that, imagine where I am because that mind's really dim. And I'm trying to put it back together. And I'm trying to figure this out. And so I started understanding certain things. Like, okay, God is good and God loves me. Now, the Bible says God loves me, but I also personally felt yeah, I could feel that God loves me. So I started there, and I started working my way back from there. And when I finally got back to this whole idea of the plan and, and trying to understand it in relationship with what I was seeing with my own eyes, uh, I came up with this. I, I said, you know what? Whatever else is maybe true about predestination or free will, this much I know and this much I know for sure, that car trick idea of mine is not right because God is not a cheat and God is not a liar. So if God says he gives you a choice, by God, you have a choice. He doesn't lie. He, in fact, he says, I cannot lie. He says it, and uh, in, in Paul reiterates it in Titus, in the letter to Titus, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie. By the way, does that mean God's all, not all-powerful? Because we just said God can't do this. Because you ever hear that thing, if God's all-powerful, can he build a rock too big for him to lift? Have you heard that? The answer to that question is no because that's an intrinsic impossibility. But you can go one better than that. There's a lot of things God says he can't do. He can't lie. He also says he can't remember your sins. He says, I throw them as far as the east is from the west, and I remember them no more. I will not remember them. He can't change. There's a lot of things God can't do. Well, how can that be? Just because God can do anything doesn't mean he can do everything. Because God made choices that limit his other choices. He chose to be a moral God didn't have to be. He could have been an immoral God, could have been an evil God, but he chose to be moral. And as soon as he made that decision, there's a whole lot of stuff he can't do anymore. He chose that. He also chose to love you. He chose to love me. And it's a really good thing because I don't deserve it. I mean, if I treated my wife the way I treat my God, she would have divorced me years ago. No question about that. Because I have been very unfaithful to my God. And yet he chose to love me. And at the same time, he realizes that love is a choice. You know, Hollywood tells you it's a feeling or an emotion. It's not. It's a choice. The same way God chooses to love us, he wants us to choose to love him. And if that happens, that means we have to have a choice because God's not a cheat and God's not a liar. So if he's good, he has to give us a choice of evil. Has to, or else we don't have a choice. No one wants love with no choice. You know, when I, when I proposed to Victoria... About 16 years ago, my proposal did not sound like this. Well, I've been all over the world, honey. I haven't found anybody willing to marry me, so I guess I'll marry you. I don't think I have no choice, you know, like every, every woman's dream, right? She, she would just said, you can leave right now, you know, you know I'll just stay here. Uh, but, but 16 years later, she doesn't want to hear that now. You know, I, you know I, what I told you 16 years ago is true, and now I got fat and old. No one will have me, so uh, I guess I'm stuck with you, you know. Uh, no one wants to hear that. She wants to hear, you know, I chose you 16 years ago, and I chose you, choose you again today, and I'll choose you for the next 16. That's what you want to hear. You want to hear it's a choice, and you make it knowing what you're doing. And that's what God wants of us. He wants us to be able to choose him. And he says, there's no tricks. There's no forcing. There has to be a choice. In fact, he tells us that he's going to give us a choice. He says this. Uh, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, 
that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life, the length of your days. Choose life, he says. Also says this in Romans, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe, and are justified is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. But that's a choice that you make. No one's making you do that. Jesus actually goes one step further. He says, every day, pick up your cross and follow me. Make that choice daily. It's a choice. It's a choice to serve God. It's a choice to love God. But if he's saying it's a choice, that means there has to be another side to that choice. Because God doesn't trick you. Right? So what about prophecy? What about prophecy? There's, you know, so, you know, because it was prophesied that Pontius Pilate would crucify Jesus. Okay, if that's a prophecy, did he have a choice? See, prophecy is actually easy to understand if when you start looking at it from the nature of God. You know, let's, uh, let's take a look at this. For example, you could do it with this little car trick thing that we did here today. Um, so here, here's what you do. Probably about, mm, usually, usually sometime this evening now, we have our sermons online. And uh, it might be that, you know, it'll be tomorrow night. But sometime, go online. When it's there, here's what you do. Go ask a friend to come over and watch this with you. Say, hey, my pastor, who's really, really cool, you know, did this really wild car trick. You got to see this. You can use your own words, but, you know, just in case you're looking for something to say. And invite them to come over. Say, I, I, w- this, was, you know, this happened in church. You're not going to believe it. Pulled out a deck of cards, did a car trick right in the middle of church. Watch this with me. And you can fast forward the video to the place where the car trick starts and play it. And as soon as we get to the point where we put the little silk over the cards, you know, stop the, stop the video. Look at your friend and say, now watch this. Joey's going to pick the queen of hearts. And then continue the rest of the video, right? Well, she's going to pick the queen of hearts, right? I don't know what your friend's going to say about the card trick, but I know this. They're not going to say, ooh, how did you know that? You're like a prophet. How did you know Julia's going to pick the queen of hearts? No one's going to say that. Why? Because she was here, right? You were here. It's not prophecy. It's memory. You know, you, you, you start this whole thing by saying, this happened while I was in church, and I saw it. And so, ex- of course, you knew. It'd be weird if you didn't know what card trick what, what, car, what car was selected, right? It's completely normal that you know that. Well, guess what? That tomorrow that you're afraid of, that you don't know what's going to happen, God's already there. He's not looking forward in the future, like Odin with his little eye, you know, through a murky kind of a cauldron or something. Nope, God's already there. How does that work? It's hard to wrap our mind around, but God created time. Before God put the moon and the sun in the sky, there were no days and nights. They didn't exist. He created time. And there's so many things he created in order for us to live and be here on earth that we kind of take for granted, like gravity, you know, oxygen. But he also created time for us. He created it for us. He didn't need it. He doesn't have it. He's not limited by time. He created seconds and minutes and days and all that. He created them for us. And we live in this world that has time, but he doesn't. Now, he can step into time. He does that when Jesus comes as a baby. He steps into our time. And he, and, he, and he accepts the limitations of time. Um, Holy Spirit comes into time. But he can also step out of time. And when he does, he sees everything happen at once because he's not, he's not bound up by time. So he already saw it. So when he said Pontius Pilate crucifies Jesus and he wrote it in his prophecy, it already happened to him because he sees time like that all at once. And so he's absolutely still in control even though he absolutely gives us free choices. Pontius Pilate had a free choice but he knew what he would choose because he saw it happen. 
if, if that makes sense, right? So what happened to God being in control? I, I can't explain it all because I'm still kind of learning it myself. But let me tell you one thing I know that, that actually shows that he has complete and total control. There's one thing about your life that you have no choice of, and no one else has any choice over either, only God. And that's this, when you were born. God determines when you're placed on the earth. He's the only one who does that. No one can do that. Only he can. So he chooses, knowing what everybody will choose, he chooses when to put them on earth. So when he put Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king, on earth, he also chose to put Daniel, the faithful servant, on earth. When he chose Saul, who had become a king who became evil, he also chose to put David on earth, a king who had become good. When he chose to put Hitler on the earth, he also chose to put Churchill on the earth. And he sees instantly how all this stuff, billions of people, billions and billions of choices, all interact. And he knows how to place people in order to see that his will gets done. When he placed Pontius Pilate on earth, he knew he would crucify his son. Because God controls when we come to earth. We may have choices after that, but he already knows what they are. So God stays in control because he's just that good. He's better than we are. He's bigger than we are. He's smarter than we are, but he doesn't manipulate us. Our choices are free. Our choices are allowed. We're allowed to do whatever we want, and nothing we do is going to change God's will. You do not have to worry about that. Okay, so um, there's a phrase that was used in the royal times that I put this up last night, and people like looked at it strangely. <laughs> We have to understand that we serve at the king's pleasure. Now, what that means is the king appoints servants to do things, and he can also revoke that appointment. They actually still use it with the president of the United States. There are people in his cabinet that are appointed at the pleasure of the president. They'll actually say that, you know, at the pleasure of the president. He can take them away. He can appoint them. We're appointed as God's servants at his pleasure. We serve at his pleasure. So we have to understand that sometimes he asks us to do things as his servants that may not make sense to us, but it has a very important part to him. And that's what happened with Paul and Barnabas. They had to go to the Jews because the Jews had to have a choice. Even though God knew what they are going to choose, even he told them what he was going to choose, you have to go because you're their choice. You're going to present the choice to them that they can listen to the gospel or not. It's their choice. And if they don't go, then they don't have a choice. And if they don't have a choice, God isn't fair, but God's fair. So my servants, Paul and Barnabas, he says, have to go there and give them a choice. We already know they're not going to accept it, but it's okay. Now, I believe Paul and Barnabas knew this fully. And, and they went anyway because all they want to do is say, you know what? We serve at the king's pleasure. Is this what the king needs us to do? Because if it is, we go. It's just that simple. But watch what happens to him now here at the, at the end. The Jews incited devout women in prominence and leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> Waiting for that persecution. Here it comes. When, when they said, we're going to preach to the Gentiles, they said, okay, we're going to persecute you then. And they drove them out of their district. Drove them out. But I want you to see the very last verse here. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They shake the dust off their sandals, which is what Jesus tells them to do when somebody won't accept the gospel. Puts their sandals back on, they go on, singing hymns. They just got rejected. They just got abused emotionally, at least. Uh, they just got turned on. They got driven out of the city for nothing they did wrong. 
And how they respond? They're singing hymns. Why? Because they serve at the king's pleasure. And this whole thing means the king still needs them. The king still has a use for them. The king still wants them to serve him, which is all they want to do. When Jesus Christ comes to earth, that's all he does. I am here to do the will of the Father who sent me, period. And when Jesus left, he gave us that as our mission. Now you are here to do the will of the Father who sent Jesus and now loves us. And they're okay with that. They go on. We need to start understanding that this is what we need to be. We need to choose to be God's servants no matter what he calls us to do. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's sometimes hard on us, emotionally, sometimes physically, but we're, we're here to do God's will. So real quick, what about Boston Presbyterian Church? What's going on there? I believe we're a choice. I do. I, I believe it's not a coincidence that both of these things happen. I believe that we're a choice. I believe that the pastor we're talking about was called by God to be a pastor. I believe that. I also believe that he's been a very good pastor, but about nine years ago, a very bad thing happened to him that hurt him, church politics. At that moment, and I know this for a fact because I used to be his friend, he made the decision to never put the church first. I will now put my family first in all cases. Now, some of you may put your family first, um, but a preacher really can't because our church is our ministry. And there is no way that I can take something God has called me to do and not put it first, but say I put God first. I can't do it. If God says, this is what I want you to do, and I say, God, you're first in my life, then guess what's the first thing I need to do? And, and sometimes there, we're, wa- we're walking along a path with the Lord, and we say, I don't like this. I want to just move a little bit over. I'm, I'm okay with most of it, but God, this part here makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to move a little bit off. I'm going to continue to walk with you in parallel. Uh, it's okay, I'll do that. But I need to move a little bit. And that's not how it works. You don't walk in parallel. As soon as you do that, you diverge. And the further you walk, the further away you get. But I believe God's calling to him, trying to get him back. And I believe we're the choice. And if that's all that happens out of this, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because that means that God still has use for us as a church. That means that we serve at the king's pleasure. And if this is what he wants of us, then this is what we will do. And we'll accept that role gratefully because we want to be part of the king's kingdom. And we want to do what he has called us to do. More than anything else, that's all we need to do. What do you want? If this is what you want us to do, then we'll do it. And if you have something else in mind, great. You know. But if not, we'll still be willing there. Because if you're trying to use us to help bring back somebody else, sounds good to me. Whatever you want to do. I have one more verse here for you. And then I know we're running low, long because of the car trip. Because Julie just took so long. She'll finish the verse. Go. Uh, you did a great job, by the way. Great job, Julie. Um, anyway, here, here's one of my favorite choice verses in all the Bible. It's in Joshua. It's his, from his farewell speech. He's, he's talking to the Israelites before he retires as their leader. And he says this, look, if it seems evil you, to you to serve the Lord, okay, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served in Egypt or the gods across the river, those people, or even the gods of the land you now dwell in. And boy, we have gods here. If you haven't noticed, we have gods in this land. Choose, he says, choose. If you want to serve them, you go ahead. But as for me and my church, we will serve the Lord. Would you all please pray with me?